This study of Romans is entitled Baptism into Christ Jesus. The text is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In introduction, if chapter 5 of Romans is about justification, then chapter 6 transitions from justification to sanctification, though not completely. If chapter 5 is mainly about redemption accomplished, chapter 6 is mainly about redemption applied. If chapter 5 is mainly about faith, then chapter 6 is more about repentance. Again, if chapter 5 is about the creation of the Christian life, chapter 6 is about the commencement of the Christian life. I preached through this portion of Romans some time ago, focusing specifically on baptism, that is, water baptism. Undoubtedly, in this passage, water baptism was something Paul intended to suggest, and very strongly. Yet his reference to water baptism in verse 3, at least, is indirect. He doesn't actually speak of being baptized into water, or even baptized into the church, for that matter. While it may be deduced that water baptism has import here, still we must conclude that it is indirect and by relation. And that is true because of what Paul actually said in verse 3. In the same way, when Paul speaks of death here in Romans 6, he toggles back and forth between the literal death of Christ and the figurative death of Christians, that is, either death with Christ or death to their old life of sin. He also speaks of a literal resurrection and a figurative resurrection, so care must be taken to understand the words in the way they were originally intended. What we have in this passage is a teaching by analogy. Baptism, death, and resurrection are all used as analogies here in Romans 6. And we will start with the analogy of baptism. The word baptism is a noun that comes from the Greek word baptisma, which means washing. And in the Bible, that would include all kinds of washings, baptismas, plural for baptisma. For example, the washing of cups and plates, the washing of the body as in a bath, and even the cleansing of the homes of people with leprosy. So the word baptisma in and of itself, could be translated variously. The context determines how it should be translated. If it comes from the words 
baptizo and bapto, uh, then we understand more about what that means. And it does. Baptizo and bapto are the root words for baptisma. Uh, Both of those words mean to dip or to immerse, even to dye, D-Y-E. That is to change the color of something by dipping it completely into water that has color in it. Baptizo is even found in the Greek Old Testament, the the Septuagint, to mean overwhelm. For example, in Isaiah 21.4, where the prophet says that fearfulness frightened me, the translators of the Greek Old Testament chose the word baptizo to convey the idea of the prophet being overwhelmed or frightened with fear. Every time you read the word baptism or baptize in the Bible, it is not necessarily referring to baptism into water. The context must determine the meaning. So, what kind of baptism did Paul mean in verse 3? Now, imagine that in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul, instead of saying, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, chose instead to say, as many of us as were simply baptized, were baptized into his death. Then the meaning would most definitely have to mean water baptism or baptism into the church as a member via water baptism. It would be understood. But what we see specifically in verse 3 is that Paul distinguished the baptism here not as water baptism, but as baptism into Christ Jesus. Or do you not know, he said, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The phrase baptized into his death further distinguishes the kind of baptism Paul intended to communicate. It is a figure or an analogy. In this analogy, Christ Jesus is like the water or the substance into which the Roman Christians were said to have been plunged or immersed, that that is, baptized. They were baptized into him and into his death. This is the analogy of our union with Christ Jesus. Certainly, Paul must have used the analogy of baptism because it was familiar to the church. Everyone who was a member of the church was baptized into it via water baptism. When we get to verse 4, we will discover that more. In any case, it served as the perfect analogy to communicate the union of the believer with Christ Jesus. There is a spiritual union of believers with Jesus Christ. Very simply put, we are in him and he is in us. It is a blessed and spiritual reality. But it is not abstract or without definition. One might ask, how can we be in him and he be in us? Well, this is something we know from further studies in Romans is possible because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, is the one who unites us to Jesus Christ. To be in the Spirit is to be in Christ. But how do we know that the believer's union with Jesus Christ is really what Paul intended to communicate? Well, first of all, there are clues in the previous passage, Romans chapter 5. First, in speaking of faith, hope and love is substantial, meaningful, and significant. Paul, in chapter 5, verse 5, said, Hope does not disappoint, 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, Paul was describing in Romans 5 not only the believer's redemption accomplished by Christ, but also that very redemption applied by the Holy Spirit. It was accomplished in Christ. It was applied by the Holy Spirit. Faith, hope, and love are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he, Paul said, was given to us. This conveys the idea of unity with God in the Spirit so that faith, hope, and love are not merely self-generated emotions or virtues, but meaningful spiritual virtues that are granted with power. Second, Romans 5 speaks of Christ dying for the ungodly, namely, for us, in chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. That is, Christ died on behalf of us, or in the stead of us. There is a kind of unity with Christ in those verses. It is a forensic or legal unity. Christ's death was, forensically speaking, the death of every believer. They are justified, reconciled, and saved by his blood. Third, Paul went on to show a representative unity between Adam and all his descendants, as well as a representative unity between Christ and all who, according to chapter 5, verse 17, receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Adam's sin is the sin of many. Likewise, Christ's righteousness is the righteousness of many. So, we get to chapter 6, and it becomes clear that the believer's unity with Christ is what Paul originally had in view. So, Paul could analogically say, and quite naturally, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. In other parts of the New Testament, this baptism into Christ Jesus shows up variously as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, many groups these days confuse the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing that comes after one is already converted or already believing in Jesus Christ. It is not. The whole of the New Testament shows that baptism into Christ Jesus is one and the same as baptism of or into the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is impossible for someone to be in Christ but not in the Spirit and vice versa. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Moving forward, the doctrine of the union of the believer with Jesus Christ is a very broad doctrine. But let's go to what Paul intended here in Romans 6. And he intended to give a specific sub-teaching of this doctrine, which is clear from his distinction that baptism into Christ Jesus means baptism into Christ's death. We will now look at this second analogy. First, Christ's death is not analogical. It is literal, actual. Christ really died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died to save. In this passage, that death was death by crucifixion, verse 6. And it was a death to sin once for all, according to verse 10. Christ died on account of sin and for the expiation of it, that is, 
to put it away from us. And this was a one-time, unrepeatable event. This is the literal death of Jesus Christ in this passage. Now, this is the death to which the believer's figurative death is comparable. But let's go back a bit. Our death in this passage is analogical. In verse 3, being baptized into Christ Jesus includes being baptized into his death. In other words, when you were united to Christ via the Spirit's application of redemption to you, the justification he accomplished by his death became yours. You were forensically united to his death through faith, and all the benefits of his perfect, sacrificial, vicarious death became yours. For example, peace with God forgiveness from God, and imputed righteousness from God became yours. Baptism into the death of Christ means forensic unity with him. You are one with him and in his atoning death one with him before God, legally. You were plunged into this forensic blessedness. Now, let's fast forward. Paul, after establishing this analogical presentation of our forensic unity with Christ in his death, took the analogy a step further. We've been talking about baptism into Christ's death, but here is where Paul shifted gears and spoke of burial through baptism into death. Verse 4 does speak directly about water baptism. Let's read it. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. The water baptism is actual, but it serves as an analogy. Let's get our bearings or our position correct. We need to know where we are. Verse 4 does not teach that water baptism unites us to Christ spiritually, nor that it unites us to the forensic blessings of Christ's death legally. That is what happened already. Verse 3 teaches that. Verse 3 is the forensic reality accomplished by Christ and acquired by you by faith. That is what precedes verse 4. This has to come first. Union with Christ, in verse 3, precedes what Paul was about to say in verse 4. Therefore, he said, that is, because of this, based on this reality of our union with Christ in his death, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, at first, that might seem a little confusing. Why would Paul basically say the same thing twice in a row? Was he saying we were baptized into Christ's death and so we were baptized into death? That would seem too simplistic and difficult. What makes more sense is if Paul meant we were unified with Christ in his death and so we were baptized by water. But in verse 4, Paul can no longer be speaking forensically. We need to understand that in moving from verse 3 to verse 4, he moved from the forensic blessing of being in Christ, according to verse 3, 
to the ethical and spiritual transformation of being in Christ. And that has everything to do with repentance. Verse 4 is an analogy of dying to our old selves and living anew through Jesus Christ. Where does that begin for disciples of Jesus? It begins in water baptism, in which the person who is saved by faith now makes a public break with his unethical past. His repentance is open for all to see. He is buried with Christ through baptism into death. This is not a second blessing. It is not a second part to the union with Christ in verse 3. It is simply the natural course of the disciples walk in his association to Jesus who saved him. We sinners were buried with him through baptism into death. Death to what? Death to our old walk in contrast to the new walk. Death to our old man, verse 6 points that out. Death to sin, verse 6 again. And death to slavery or service to sin, verses 6 and 7. The analogy of burial shows the finalization to what the believer breaks with in his repentance and his submission of himself to baptism. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says this, quote, To leave a dead body unburied is represented, alike in heathen authors as in scripture, as the greatest indignity. It was fitting, therefore, that Christ, after dying for our sins according to the scriptures, should descend into the lower parts of the earth. As this was the last and lowest step of his, of his humiliation, so it was the honorable dissolution of his last link of connection with that life which he laid down for us. And we, in being buried with him by our baptism into his death, have by this public act severed our last link of connection with that whole sinful condition and life which Christ brought to an end in his death. End quote. Death, and especially burial in verse 4, are analogical to termination. Water baptism as a public event before the church does represent an ethical termination to who you were before you knew Christ. It is a death and burial of who and what you used to be. How do we know that is the kind of analogy Paul meant in verse 4? Well, not just because of the commentators but because of the rest of the verse. Let's read it again. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that, the word that implies purpose, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so so we also should walk in in the newness of life. Which brings us to the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection life. The resurrection of Christ is literal. Verse 4 says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. This is part of the gospel story. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is his resurrection, in verse 5, which indicates that death no longer has dominion over him, in verse 9, and that the life he lives, he lives unto God, in verse 10. This is the actual resurrection of Christ, but this also serves as an analogy of the believer's obligation to live a new life. 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. There is an obligation to the Christian life. That obligation is to live unto Jesus Christ. Yes, even though we know from chapter 5 that this new walk of faith, hope, and love are empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we are not alone in it, it is nevertheless an obligation. Baptism was our burial into Christ's death. The part of repentance that indicates a termination of our old ways. The new walk is our resurrection life, and it is a genesis of new ways. But not only is the resurrection life an obligation to live in a fresh, new, and holy way, it is also a certainty for true believers. It is the expectation. That is the grammatical structure of verse 5. If we have been united, united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is, if we have the one, that is, union with Christ in his death, both forensically and ethically, then certainly we also shall have the other, a unity of likeness in his resurrection. Philippians 3, 9 up to 10 may help. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here Paul spoke of having the righteousness which is from God by faith as the most excellent treasure in life. He desired to be found in Christ so that he might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That is, knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, ethically speaking, as impacts our character, our growth in holiness is, inseparable, is inseparably connected to being conformed to Christ's death as much as that impacts our repentance from sin. One cannot be legitimate without the other. If it's real then it will show itself real. In short, progressive sanctification presupposes definitive sanctification. If you really are united to Christ in his death, you will look like it in your life. If your faith is genuine and your baptism was a legitimate termination of your old ways and your sins, then your life since then is a real genesis of new ways and right living. And now, in practical application. First, a clarification needs to be made. Just because you are one with Christ forensically before God, and one with Christ ethically in your new life through the Spirit, you are not, nor will you ever be, one with Christ essentially. You are not him, you are not God, nor are you the perfect man. There is only one. Union with Christ should be understood in its proper terms and limitations. There is much blessedness in union with Christ, but without understanding, many people have come to embrace false teachings that they are Christ, but that is not what Paul meant. 
All that you have in Christ is by legal and ethical association to him. It is a spiritual, forensic, and ethical blessedness that is yours through the Spirit of God. Second, we have, as Paul did first, answered his question in the first two verses, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Someone might come to the ridiculous conclusion that just because Christ bore all our sins on the cross, and just because salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, that we might go on sinning and still be accepted of God. That is completely wrong. Paul's answer, certainly not, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it, is enough. So the doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ is indispensable. Continuing in sin is incompatible with the Christian life. Our life outside of Christ, before faith, was just like what Paul said in verse 21. Sin reigned in death. Sin ruled in death. It had dominion in death. But how does grace now reign through Jesus Christ our Lord? It reigns through righteousness to eternal life. First through imputed righteousness and as a byproduct through the ethical righteousness of our being in union with Jesus Christ. Third, there is often talk about free will. And usually this is associated to all men, including those who are still in sin. It is a contradiction of terms to apply free will to those who are in sin. Why? Because of the fourth and final analogy, which I didn't mention before, that Paul gives in this passage. It is the analogy of slavery and freedom. It is not until our union with Jesus Christ that we are set free. Paul gave an example in verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That is just to say that when you're dead physically, you don't sin anymore. That's an analogy. Freedom from sinning only comes after a person has died. But for the believer, there is freedom because of his union with Christ in death. Verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul used the analogy to bring home the truth. The only persons who have renewed ability, a will liberated to do spiritual good that accompanies salvation, are those in union with Jesus Christ. There is no absolutely free will outside of this. There is only inability. But since you have renewed ability, you've been set free. You can repent. You no longer have to serve sin. You belong to Jesus. You are free. So, as he lives to God, you live to God also. Fourth, and finally, there is a great motivation for us to live with new habits, in new ways, to live holy, to live unto God. One motivation is that living in the newness of life is just that. It's new. It's not the same old brokenness and corruption and guilty feeling that sinful living hammered you with day in and day out. 
It's wholeness. It's purity. It's Christ exalting. It's glorious. It's of your Father. It's new. So do this. Walk in the newness of life in Jesus. Here's motivation that we just talked about. Christ sets you free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, he said in John chapter 8. If you are free from sin, you can serve him and serve in the joy of that freedom. Why? Because slavery to sin is only misery. Sure, you have pleasure in sin temporarily, but it always leaves you empty. And there is no pure joy in it. It leaves you miserable and just waiting for condemnation. But you are free. Think of that. Free to serve God by living unto him. Another motivation is that there is more to verse 5 than just what we mentioned already. For we do not... Excuse me. I'm I'm over here around Corinthians or Philippians. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We talked about the certainty of living as a new person in holiness, especially if you really have been united to Christ in his death. But the resurrection life is only partially enjoyed here. John Gill says that, quote, believers shall share in the benefits of, and feel and enjoy the effects of it, that is, of Christ's resurrection, but also that our bodies will be raised on the last day. That's the full meaning of verse 6 and what Paul meant to say in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we we shall also live with him. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is expressed to us here. Everyone who has truly been saved, truly been united with Christ, will never be lost, but will finally and blessedly and eternally live with him. Now that's motivation to serve him in the newness of life, because it's a full salvation that he has graciously granted to you. I I hope you've enjoyed this study of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, baptism into Christ Jesus, and I look forward to sharing more from chapter 6 real soon. God be with you.